Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and although it took us 23 episodes, we're finally here. An episode of Cheftimony with a Latin title, In Vino Veritas. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Cheftimony. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Thanks, as always, for joining me, and welcome back to the Cheftimony podcast. Today brings the long-promised interviews on the wonderful subject of wine, hence the title, In Vino Veritas, which, as far as my extremely limited Latin takes me, means In Wine Truth, or In Wine Lies the Truth. I've recently learned that the phrase sometimes continues, In Vino Veritas, In Aqua Sanitas. So, In Wine Lies the Truth, In Water, Good Sense. The truth is that both interviews today are completely sober. It's just that we talked a whole lot about wine. I'll come to those interviews in a minute, but first a tiny bit of housekeeping. Married Life is continuing well, and we are off on phase two of the honeymoon next week. That will be a few days in New York City. Really looking forward to that trip and, of course, to exploring more of New York's culinary options. For an interview from our last trip there, please check out episode eight of Cheftimony, and that's got my interview with Chef Jenny Dorsey. I don't have specific plans for an interview this trip, but I definitely will be bringing you thoughts on the food scene in an upcoming episode. Now, what else? I am doing my best to keep the Vegas content to a minimum in this specific episode, but I will be in Las Vegas in November. I'm really excited for that trip, too. Going to meet up with some new friends, one of whom I spoke with recently, and that is Laura Tucker. Laura is a Vegas-based attorney who is also a food and a craft beer enthusiast. So we had a really fun talk on the scenes both in Las Vegas and in Reno, where she's also spent a lot of time. That interview is going to be coming up soon on Chef Timoni. So will my interview with Chef Jesse McCleary of Pilgrim Restaurant on Galliano Island. I'm still really reminiscing about that dinner we had there a couple of weeks ago. That is a really fun talk with Jesse as well. Keep an eye out for it in the coming weeks. Now, I usually do this at the end of the show, but let's just switch things up today. I would really, really appreciate it if you could take a minute or two or three to leave either a rating, a star rating, or a written review for Chef Timoni. Or both. If you do that on Apple Podcasts or on one of the other podcast apps, it will really help other people to find the show. So if you're enjoying Cheftimony, please do let others know about it by rating and or reviewing the show. Thanks for considering that. Okay, on to the interviews. I have to say in advance, through absolutely no fault of my guests, the audio is a little bit challenging at certain points in the interviews today. Audio recording and post-production is an ongoing education for me, and today's interviews do have some background noise in them, particularly the second one. That one was recorded in a really noisy downtown cafe. So please forgive my ongoing audio engineering development, and you're still going to hear some really great thoughts today on the subject of wine. First up is Kelsey Jones, and Kelsey is the wine director at Shambar Restaurant in Vancouver's Crosstown neighborhood. Shambar is something of an institution in this city. It's been around for about 15 years. The menu is really interesting. It's a combination, I I suppose, of Belgian and North African influences. I can say that I've enjoyed their mussels in various iterations for years and years and years, and I know lots of other people have as well. Today, though, the, the menu is a lot more varied. They've got delicious things from breakfast right to late in the evening, so anytime you stop by, you're going to find something good. Kelsey welcomed me into Shambar last month, and we sat down for a great talk that ranged everywhere from wine service to organic farming in the south of France to just whether a sommelier can enjoy a $10 bottle of pizza wine. 
and Kelsey, and I've noticed this with other really good wine pros. She clearly knows an absolute ton on the subject, but she's also completely down to earth and friendly and just keen to share her knowledge, and I think that is so fantastic. Wine can be a really intimidating subject, and I love it when those who know a lot about it just share their love for wine without pretense or self-importance. And speaking for myself as somebody who doesn't know much about wine at all, I really find that helpful. I know you're going to love hearing what Kelsey has to say. After my talk with Kelsey, I will take you to another restaurant, and that is the Bell Cafe in the Hotel Georgia in downtown Vancouver. That's where I met with a colleague from the world of law, Bruno DeVita QC. Bruno writes a column on wine for our industry publication that's a magazine called The Advocate. And like Kelsey, Bruno is happy to share his passion for wine freely and enthusiastically with the rest of us. Turns out that Bruno and his wife are also enthusiastic cooks, so he and I got well into the topic of cooking Italian food at home. My talk with Bruno is coming up soon, but join me now in a private dining room on the lower level of Vancouver's Shambar restaurant. Here is my talk with wine director Kelsey Jones. Well, here we are on Tuesday afternoon, September 3, just after Labor Day. I'm sitting in the lower level. I've been in one of these rooms, but not this one. I'm joined by Kelsey Jones. Super excited to talk to you. So first of all, Kelsey, thanks for being on Chef-Demone. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with Shamar, which is where we're sitting right now. It's a restaurant we were saying just before we started recording that has been around for a while, although in its current form, much larger than I first remember it. So please just give us an overview of the restaurant and how you fit into it and, and what you bring to the restaurant here. Absolutely. It's a long history. I'll try to do it justice. Mm-hmm. We actually just celebrated our 15-year anniversary of Shambar. That happened in August, and it's been a pretty exciting wild ride, but I've only been really around for the past two and a half or so, going on three years. Carrie and Nico Schurmans started Shambar in the space next door to here, so we're at 568 BD. They were originally at 562 BD, and they were so busy all the time, they decided five years ago to move to this larger space to expand so that they could accommodate everybody who wanted to eat here. Fantastic. And the hours, I think, I, I think probably have expanded. You're now doing breakfast, lunch, yes, dinner, absolutely. brunch, everything. So initially, the restaurant was a dinner-only a dinner only spot, and Carrie and Nico approached a good friend of theirs, Robbie, to start Cafe Medina next door to Shambar, and then we moved to this larger space the building wanted it to be so that Shambar itself had breakfast, lunch, and dinner to cater to the offices above so that people would have a place to have breakfast and lunch. So they decided to add a very similar menu to what Medina had going on to the Shambar program. And then Robbie Kane took Medina and made it a little bit, one of like five or six blocks away now, um, on Richard. So Medina is now completely its own thing owned by Robbie, and Shambar is now breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> All the way through. And I'm guessing you personally are busiest in the evenings with your role. And, and tell us, what, what is your role, and what time what time of day am I going to find you here at Shambar? <laughs> Absolutely. The answer is all times of day. Mm-hmm. Um, though you're right, primarily people drink wine in the evening. I'm not serving... Grand Cru Burgundy at uh, nine in the morning. <laughs> Though Sounds our liquor like it's license, not a bad way to start the day. Our liquor <laughs> license does start that early if people are so inclined. 
but yeah, I typically do more admin work in the morning. Like I'll get here 11 or noon. Sometimes I can get here as late as like two o'clock, which is awesome. And then I sort of am on the floor and doing restaurant service from 4 p.m. to 10, 11 p.m. at night. Yeah, it's a widespread. And what does your role look like within the service? You're working with individual servers and coordinating the wine program? How does that work? Pretty much. I open and serve all the wines. We do things a little bit differently here than a lot of restaurants. Essentially, there's a wine list that goes to a table, and if a guest wants to speak to a sommelier, that's me or one of the other two sommeliers that work for me. We'll go to the table, discuss the wine, and... When the order is placed, we retrieve the wine from the cellar, we present it, we open it off the table, and usually decant it just to make sure that the wine is showing well. Traditionally, in a lot of restaurants, you open it right in front of the guest and pour it right then and there, but we found over the years that a lot of faulted bottles get poured or things that maybe should have a very deep decant don't get the treatment that they need when everything is happening right at the table. So everything comes away, we have a chance to make sure that the wine is showing exactly as we would like it to show, and then it goes to the table. And when you say showing, do you mean both visually and are you, uh, you're, you're taking in the aroma of the wine? Like, what, what does showing mean to you and to sommeliers? Absolutely. Good question. So very rarely actually has to do with anything visual, and it's really more about does the wine smell as it's supposed to and taste as it is supposed to. Sometimes wines are infected by cork taint, they're like a corked wine, and you never want anybody to have to have a corked wine. It's an unpleasant flavor profile, it won't kill you, it's totally neutral on the health spectrum, but it's just not good tasting. And other times there are other faults that happen with the wine, like it could be really reduced, so the wine is just like really quiet and kind of closed in on itself, so it might mean that it needs more air, so you might have to put it in a decanter, splash it around, let it kind of wake up. Other things can happen, like corks get old over time, and sometimes the cork fails, and it's an old bottle that just didn't age very well, so you want to have the chance to grab a new bottle and bring that new bottle to the table so that nobody has to taste a yucky wine and send it back. Right, right. You know, this is reminding me of a story years ago. I, I sent a colleague and a friend of mine, he was going to Chicago, and I said, oh, are you going to Charlie Trotter's restaurant, which, of course, was big back in the day mm, and uh, yeah and so he did he and his wife went there and then he came back and yelled at me because they had a bill that was you know sort of <laughs> commensurate <laughs> with the experience but what he what, what sticks in my mind about that story was and it was new to him as an experience he said the sommelier brought the wine and in most places his experience and mine has been the same the waiter the server will pour the wine for you, you taste it and say yes or no and he said at Charlie Trotter's, somebody else came out and they tasted the wine and they told you whether or not it was it was <laughs> good or bad. Which I think is fantastic, right? Because I am no wine expert at all and I love being able to trust people. So is that what you're offering here? That's essentially what we're trying to offer. There's a maybe a middle ground between the original experience and the Charlie Trotter experience, which is that we still absolutely have the guests taste the wine. We don't want anyone to feel like we are trying to be the ultimate authority because sometimes you order something, you think it's going to be X, it turns out to be Y, and even though, in my mind, it is X, so it tastes like X, so to me it's correct, you might still have thought, oh my gosh, this is completely not what I want. So there's still a space for a guest to experience the wine and taste it themselves. But there's definitely that element of, yeah, we're experts. We know what it tastes like, and we want to make sure that it tastes correct before you get it. 
Well, we're going to come back to this and to wines and the restaurant and tasting, but let's back up a little bit and tell the listeners when when did you first start getting into wine and was that through the process of your education because i understand you've, you've also got a master's in literature sorry i have yes yeah. yeah so so where did wine enter your world and and how and when did you decide on this as a career path yeah they're pretty separate educations actually i essentially i went to the university of toronto for my undergraduate degree and the whole time that i was doing my undergrad degree i had a job in a restaurant i was working as a server and sort of in my final years of my undergrad and then into my master's, I worked for a restaurant group when they first opened called The Chase in Toronto, which was the first restaurant I'd ever worked in that had a sommelier. And it was the first time in which I was really required to study and understand the wine that we were serving on any kind of deep level. Prior to that, I'd worked in places where I would say, like, oh, yeah. The Riesling is sweet, and the Sauvignon Blanc is dry, and that was sufficient. But at this point, I had to learn a, a larger language of wine, and it, to me, mirrored a lot of the discussions I was having in literary context. So there were ways you talk about books the same way that you talk about wine, and that was very fascinating to me. And when I finished my master's degree, I had applied to do the PhD, but I decided to take a year off and go to France and work for a winery, and I thought it would be like a nice break from from academia and it turned out to be such a good break that I just thought I would do this for the rest of my life instead amazing well what what happened in France (laughs) (laughs) yeah I worked for I worked for really really great people when I was in France I worked in Provence so in the south very close to the sea actually Provence is a really large area of France and it can go quite far into the mountains but I was pretty much right on the beach but up in elevation so mountain beach similar to vancouver so i felt very at home but i really just felt that the people who i worked for their names are rochelle and yvon grazel they run a tiny winery called domaine muren i just thought they kind of had it figured out they farmed organically it was a very small property everything is completely self-sustaining so they have a garden and they run a tiny little restaurant service once a week from the winery and it just really made me think that there was a better way to experience food and wine and life and things could things could be uh could be slow and easy right it sounds like uh well a year in provence comes to mind of course the books and what was the other the pop larkin series in the darling buds of may Mm. where the accountant kind of leaves town and discovers this farming life and never looks back absolutely yeah that that's sort of I feel like what I went through it was very bizarre for me to be so far away from people I also was living somewhere where I sort of spoke the language but not really so I had a lot of time to think about things and I realized that I love books and I love academia so much but that will never go away and the ability to do something physical and be in touch with the earth is something that might go away you're not like young and able-bodied forever so absolutely yeah well and even the physical stamina required for service right like it is in some ways i know the cooking side better than the serving side but i've done a little bit of food running back in the day kind of a young person's game to a to an extent totally i i uh i'm tired when i go home at the end of the night you're on your feet all day and I love it so much. I love the rush. I love the excitement of the service. And I love being able to talk about wine to people. I don't know if I'll 
necessarily there are people there are sommeliers out there who are 55 and still walking the floor and that's super cool and I'm envious of that experience that those people bring but I yeah I don't know I don't know if I'll be I'll be there who knows I can say well I can say having experience being on a cooking line in my mid 40s that my knees were complaining at various times right which is maybe why I'm back in office world Tell us what like what was your day? What did it look like in France? What were you doing? Mm-hmm. How did you participate in the farming, the production? It was pretty different all the time. So obviously, the farm works on a calendar year. So what you do at any given time has to do with the the year. But I got over there through a program that's called Woof. Yeah, yeah the organic familiar. farming program. Exactly, yeah. willing workers on organic farms. I think is the full the full thing and. They had never had a wolf, wolf person before, so I was the very first person to show up, and uh, we got along pretty well. And I think they kind of thought, "Hey, we struck out pretty nicely with the first one. Why don't we just keep you and see how it goes?" So I stuck around for much longer than intended. I was planning on being there for two weeks, and I was there for half a year. So. <laughs> yeah, the time kind of changed with the season. Sometimes I worked in the vineyards. Sometimes I worked in like the garden, so we took care of tomatoes and stuff. But it really started at like eight a.m. and finished by two most days. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that sounds quite civil. Yeah, yeah, it was quite lovely. And how into the winemaking did you get? I did most of the things that you are required to do. So definitely during harvest, I was out in the vineyard picking grapes, and then in the evening helping in the winery, but. Most of what you do when you're sort of a winery assistant or you're working in the winery is clean things. So I held a hose a lot. I washed out a lot of buckets. Washed. It sounds like staging in restaurants, in my <laughs> <It's> experience. <laughs> absolutely like that. Yeah, you, you get really good with the hose. You clean a lot of tank. You clean a lot of buckets. You clean hoses with other hoses. But also, I mean, it is really exciting to get to see fermentation start to happen. Like, that was something I'd never experienced or smelled. And it doesn't smell like wine. Right. Right. (laughs) How would you describe the smell? Mm, Yeasty. Yeasty. Very yeasty, yeah. Yeah. If you've smelled sourdough, that's kind of what wine smells like in the beginning. In the early stages. Yeah. But if it's going poorly, you can tell. Like, it starts to smell weird. So it's it's really helpful to just be smelling the wine all the time, I think. Do you find, and I, I suspect you do, just based on your comments so far, that the experience is richer knowing... I mean, of course it is. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this question. So, say if you have a billion dollars, you can experience any wine in the world, and you can have it at any time of the day. But I think there's something richer about diving into the experience and hosing out the tanks and learning about that stuff, right? And, and on my side, cleaning out the fridge or, or peeling 50 pounds of onions. And it, neither of those things is glamorous, mm-hmm. but... I I have found in the cooking side that I feel so much more connected knowing the nitty-gritty of where things come from. Is it the same for you and why? I would say so. I would say it's hard to understand why something is so beautiful and so complete if you don't have a better understanding of all the small aspects. So if you eat a composed dish and it's really delicious and beautiful, but you don't know exactly like how the vegetables were julienned and this part of the dish was maybe cooked sous vide and this thing was marinated like 48 hours in advance those things really help for you to understand how the components work together i think it's the same in wine though 
there's always the argument that, you know, once you study film and you know how every editing shot works, it ruins the romance of watching a movie because you see flaws. It's definitely the same in wine. Like, you know how something is made and you love it, but you go, oh, this wine is just a little bit too much volatile acidity, but it's pretty good otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But, But are you able at the same time, curious, do you ever go home, like, on a... Tuesday night and get a takeout pizza and a ten dollar bottle of wine and and are you able to set aside to the extent your training gets in the way and just enjoy that that experience for what it is? Yeah, totally. I uh, mean, within the ten dollar wine world, there are like wines I don't want to drink at all, and then there are ten dollar wines that I am totally happy to drink. Like, there's absolutely space for simple things. Even though I spend a lot of time tasting some really fancy stuff, I don't purchase the most expensive wine for myself or nearly ever right right because it's sort of it's like cars or fine art or whatever right? there seems to be virtually no upper limit to those absolutely to those absolutely and there's def- definitely an upper limit to my salary <laughs> i feel your pain so here's a question i was going to come to later but maybe we can dive into it now what are your thoughts on sort of i guess there's psychological studies that track how people's reaction to wine seems to have a correlation to their perceived price uh, price point on the wine. So if somebody's told the wine is $100 versus $5, it seems to taste better. Have you observed that effect? And I'm just curious for your thoughts on it generally. I have. And I think within that world, there's also, there's definitely an idea of if something costs a certain amount of money or if it has a certain name associated with it. Like if somebody thinks they're drinking Napa Cabernet Sauvignon, that's pretty much the pinnacle to a lot of people for wine. And it doesn't matter what it tastes like. If it says Napa on the label, people are excited to drink it and they think they're drinking awesome wine. Same with Brunello de Montalcino. If they see that on the label, people are like over the moon about the wine, regardless of whether or not they actually like how it tastes. But I think that there is within those dollar categories sometimes a scary because wine has such a like specific language sometimes you say something to people it's going to be like this you know it's going to be like muscular and it's going to have really like dark berry flavors and people think they understand what you're saying but they're actually reading those terms on another level and they don't end up loving the wine because it's actually quite different than what they had in their mind so there's a lot of think confusion over what wine should taste like and what the price should be based on what it tastes like any well maybe if you have any specific recommendations please give them or general thoughts and i'm thinking of a conversation i had with a former colleague years ago and he'd been he's quite into wine and collects and he and his wife had gone to bordeaux and toured a bunch of wineries and sampled some of the real fancy pants Mm -hmm. wines but he said what he learned on that trip which was really helpful to him what and he said you had to be there to learn at least in his mind was you know the the grand cru is grown over here but the what's i don't know what the first tier down is premier or you would say village level though those are like pretty good burgundian terms but yeah like premier cru class a in in bordeaux, in bordeaux. yeah so, so, 
so the yeah the sort of the tier so if the if the fancy wine I'll use that generic term was three thousand dollars the next tier down might be three hundred dollars but he said at least to his palate if this if the top one was a ninety six the second tier one was a ninety five right yet one tenth of the price mm -hmm. so is that something you see play out in the wine world and I imagine it would be kind of like what would be another example like designer labels the the one-off might be ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars yeah. and the, the mass produced which is pretty close uh -huh. might be a thousand dollars yeah right? yeah for the average person haute couture versus ready to wear hard to tell the difference unless you know a lot about fashion I would tend to agree. Bordeaux is a super specific and special example because they do do this tiered system. Like lots of other places in the world, the Grand Vin, the top wine, is not that much more expensive than the like level two or level three, the Premier Cru or the or the village level. Bordeaux, the top wines get astronomically expensive, more so than anywhere else. But I would definitely buy the second the second uh, the second wine from a lot of Bordeaux chateaus because at this point in my career I'm just not convinced that I need to spend five thousand dollars on a bottle. <laughs> I'm going to be shot by someone there, yeah, there, for saying this. Well, there would be a very finite number of times that I even could do that. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then you get this sort of pent up energy over like when are you going to open it and when is it ready? The readiness of the wine, like it being old enough to be delicious. That's a scary place to be in. Like, when is the wine ready? When should we open it? What's a, an occasion that's fitting enough? I don't think we should have that pomp and circumstance over wine. I think you should just buy things that you enjoy and open them when you feel like it. And how do you make those decisions? I mean, obviously pairing with food, but mm -hmm. is there a focus beyond that? And I can, I'll give you a very rudimentary example from my experience is natural wine versus the rest of wine. And that seems to be a common distinction these days. But mm -hmm. is there... And, is some restaurants in Vancouver really focus on natural wine these days. Is there a particular focus to Shambar, or how do you make the decisions about what types of wine you need? Yeah, good question. I definitely have a pretty strict ethical boundary for which, in which I like to buy wine, which some people don't love me for that, but that's just how I am. So I love wines that are made naturally, but it's not necessarily necessary for me for wines to be made naturally it's really important for me for wines to be grown organically without the use of chemicals i'm really not interested in wines that spray roundup or any number of chemical things in the vineyards it's also important for me to know that the winery operations are sustainable so are they trying to be good in their water use are they trying to pay or not trying to but are they paying their workers a fair wage i'm pretty deeply concerned with making sure that the wines that I buy are from wineries that are owned by human beings and not by boards of directors and families and small businesses. Those are kind of the things that Nico and Carrie have done at Chambar. You know, they're the same owners. They have not sold out to McDonald's. And so I want to make sure that I buy wine for this restaurant that reflects that same ethos. Right. That makes sense. And I think sometimes, I'd love your thoughts on this too, I think sometimes we get too wrapped up in labels. Um, natural wine might be one in, in mm -hmm. your world these days. The one that I, the obvious one I can think of on the food side is organic. And something might be labeled organic and still not farmed particularly well. Or you could find a wonderful little local producer that's doing everything right, but 
because they haven't been there enough years, they don't meet the technical qualification for the organic label. So it sounds like what matters to you is substance over form. Is that fair? I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I know it can be really tricky to register as organic, and you have to spend a lot of money to fill out a lot of forms. It does mean a lot more research on my part, because sometimes there's a winery and there's just not a whole lot of information about them. The importer can tell me X, Y, and Z about the winery, but I just kind of have to go with my gut and say, "Do I think these guys are legit?" This is a, this is a question I've asked a bunch of chefs, and I'm curious about your answer from the wine side. And the question is, how? Because there's so much ink spilled on how restaurants can improve the experience for their guests. But here's the question: How can guests improve their own experience? And I've had chefs, I'll give you a couple of answers I've had. I've had chefs say, respect your server is one, you know, don't be a rude jerk when you come to the restaurant. Others have said become a regular so you get to know the menu and interact with the kitchen and see what's changing. But so away from the food side and toward the wine side, what can guests do themselves to improve their experiences? I think being open-minded is like a really good, a good thing to be in all parts of your life but I think with regards to wine if people could be more willing to take chances and try different stuff that would be awesome for everyone because I think a lot of people just fall into a trap of knowing one or two grape varieties and only drinking those one or two grape varieties which is super limiting and not always cost effective either because sometimes people say like I want your cheapest Cabernet Sauvignon and I want to say like okay but also, you could have a different grape variety that's super affordable that you might like more. Even more. But because you've pigeonholed yourself to that one grape variety, you're never going to know. So I think open-mindedness would be the number one thing that I really, really would advocate for. Is it true that bubbly goes with everything? Yes. It is? Okay. Zero so, hesitation. Zero hesitation. I love it. Okay. So if I'm feeling intimidated anywhere and I can't muster the courage to get into a conversation, I can just order a bottle of bubbly. And you'll be fine. And yeah, have it with I, would, I, I firmly believe that. <laughs> yeah. People have argued with me over the years, like, you can't, you can't serve champagne with the lamb tagine. And I just say, yes, I can. Yes, I can, and I'm going to. Well, I first heard that rule or piece of advice from a chef who'd gone to a three-star restaurant in France and did have a conversation with the waiter who asked what their wine budget was, and they gave their wine budget which they thought they were giving for the table, but the waiter interpreted it as per person for each of the four people. And so oh. the bill came. And, they, and he said, now looking back, we had some lovely wine. We had a great experience. But he said after that, whenever he went to a restaurant that was a real stretch financially, he would pick sort of a mid-level bottle of bubbly and just drink it because he was there mostly for the food. It's pretty good a pretty good rule to live by. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. Okay. Particular finds or regions or things I should be considering as a as a as a casual wine buyer, whether I want to have you know the ten dollar bottle of pizza wine or something. Like, let's keep it under fifty dollars. But where would you steer me? Either to see if you have super specific recommendations, great. Or if you can say. Graham, you should look at this valley in France because you mm -hmm. probably haven't thought about it before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. I think for value across the table, you can't really go wrong with Portugal. It's okay. a country that produces a bunch of wine, and we all know about port, but we sort of forget that there are places that are not port. They're 
regions outside of the Douro, and they kind of have something for everybody. So I think Portugal's a pretty awesome bet, and even the top, top, top wines are not usually getting much above $50 a bottle anyway, so you are pretty safe with that. I think for a more specific place that I'm excited about that I think we'll see more wine coming from in the future, Tasmania in Australia. I think it is far south and detached enough from the mainland of Australia that people forget about it as a place in general. Um, so it's good value and it's cool enough still there that they can make really delicious bubbly and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So that is a good if you see Tasmania on the label I feel like it's I feel like it's a good bet. Good bet to try. In terms of like specific bottles, it's available in the BCLDB, so I feel confident that most people will be able to find it who are listening if if they live here in British Columbia. Christiana Tiberio's Cherswolo d'Abruzzo. So it's like a, a word that means cherry-like. So it's a dark rosé colored wine. And it's $24. And it's so delicious and so, so worth $24 that I think everyone should have a bottle all the time. Okay, wonderful. I'm going to look it up. What, what should I eat with it? You have lots of options. Here, I like to have it with what we call moru roti. So it's a lingcod done in like a rich sort of tomato-y broth. It's a very rich broth, but the fish itself is delicate, which kind of gives you an idea of the fact that it can be with richer things or more delicate stuff. Um, I like it with a lot of different salads. Any type of like summer squash dish, it's pretty good with. It's pretty versatile. Pretty versatile. Wonderful. And last question, what is a wine region experience that is, uh, give me the top of your bucket list. Mm -hmm. Like you've got a month off and you've got budget. Where are you going to go? Piemonte. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, north of Italy. It's it's not a budget holiday um, because there are a lot of really amazing restaurants that people should experience there. Right. And truffles. It's the home of Alba truffles, <laughs> which are also not, not the cheapest thing you friendly. can eat. But I do believe that there's a, also a lot of value in the smaller trattorias where you would have things like Agnolotti del Plin that are not super expensive. And the wine range is pretty big too. So obviously there's Barolo at the top end of sort of expensive wine, but there are a lot of grape varieties other than Nebbiolo growing in Piemonte that are exciting and delicious. And you can have like a really wide range of experiences there. So I think that's pretty much where I would spend the rest of my fall if fall. I had the choice. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, may you get there soon. And Kelsey, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun. Thanks, Kelsey, for a great interview and for some really great wine recommendations. And my thanks as well to a mutual friend of Kelsey's and mine. That is Janice. Janice put us in touch and made that whole interview possible. So Janice, thanks to you as well. You can find Kelsey and her team at Shambar Restaurant in Vancouver. I highly recommend that you drop by and take in their hospitality. I'll put a link to Shambar in the show notes. And now to the lawyer side of the show. For this interview, I met with Bruno DeVita at a downtown cafe very close to both of our offices. You've heard me call Bruno Bruno DeVita QC, and the QC stands for Queen's Council. That's a very well-respected designation given to accomplished lawyers who are formally appointed by the monarch to be her counsel, learned in the law. 
In British Columbia, the designation is given by the Lieutenant Governor in Council on the recommendation of the Attorney General. Suffice it to say, it's a big deal, and it's reserved for very accomplished lawyers. But his QC and his impressive wine knowledge notwithstanding, Bruno is another down-to-earth guest on Cheftimony. Bruno loves food and wine and bringing people together to share a meal. I really enjoyed our talk, and I know you will too. So let's go now for some wine recommendations and a great discussion about cooking Italian food at home. Here's my interview with Bruno De Vita, QC. All right, here we are at Bell Cafe, downtown Vancouver, on a drizzly Monday, but I'm delighted to be here with Bruno De Vita, who has joined me from a law firm right across the road. Uh, Bruno, thanks for spending your lunch with me, and, and thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. We are going to get into wine and food, because I know you're an enthusiastic home cook as well, but maybe just give us a bit of background on your practice. I know that we share some common history and that you, you have done and do a lot of insurance work, uh, but I understand there's a sports angle to your practice too. Maybe just give us the quick overview. <laughs> well, as you know, I've been uh, an insurance lawyer here in Vancouver for more years than I want to admit, uh, but it's been over 30 years and uh, practice with uh, Alexander Holborn. I've been with the same firm for my entire career. Uh, my you know, practice is in the, uh, predominantly in the area of insurance coverage, uh, but also uh, a lot of uh, liability work, uh, municipal liability, governmental liability, uh, products liability, that sort of thing. You mentioned the sports angle. I uh, was recently uh, appointed uh, deputy chair of the FIFA uh, Ethics Committee, the investigatory branch, and uh, so do a fair bit of work in, in dealing with FIFA ethics violations. It doesn't represent a large part of what I do, but uh, it's uh, an enjoyable part. It gets me uh, traveling a bit. Uh, I've been able to, uh, to see a, a couple of World Cups, uh, men's and women's, um, and uh, as well as a World Cup final. Meetings uh, are held regularly in Zurich, uh, which is the home of FIFA, and so when I have to interview witnesses um, in, with respect to cases that um, uh, where I'm the chief of investigation, uh, that can occasionally uh, involve uh, some travel. This all, this all sounds brilliant. I, I, re, I regret not trying to have added this on to my practice. It sounds wonderful. I'm guessing there's some opportunities to taste some interesting food on the road as well. Uh, yeah, there is. I've learned that uh, there's some good restaurants in Zurich. <laughs> well, let's move a little bit into the wine, and I'm going to come to a recent article that you co-wrote in our, I guess we'll call it industry publication, The Advocate, The Wine Column. But before we get there, maybe just take us through your progression as an enthusiast of wine, and, and did it follow what I'm observing as a standard progression, which is as articling students, we start out with really cheap wine, and, and as we move through our careers and, and have a little more budget capacity, we start experimenting uh, a little higher up the chain. Well, my situation is probably a little bit different uh, from the you know average university student. In fact, I started drinking wine when I was probably about five or six years old. My uh, father is an Italian immigrant, and uh, he came over from a little region in Italy called Molise, actually a region where uh, recently they've invited people to come and inhabit their little towns for $27,000 U.S. I'd read about that. They're, they're having trouble maintaining these beautiful old buildings, is that right? That's right, and maintaining the towns. Towns are, are losing their population. And my parents' village uh, was is one of those towns. It's a little place called Bagnoli del Trino. So they came over in uh, 1950, 
and uh, like most Italian families, uh, everything was homemade. You know, the prosciutto was homemade, the bread is homemade, uh, the sausages are homemade, and of course the wine was homemade. And so I was introduced to wine at the table when I was very young. And it was always Zinfandel, and I always remember when my dad made it. Uh, I call it the smell of, the smell of September. Uh, it was that smell of uh, must, and, uh, and the fruit flies. It was like you had a little tiny winery in your basement. And uh, Dad actually, when I first observed him, actually did stomp the grapes with his feet before he finally got uh, a crusher and a press. And so, um, yeah, we used to have a little bit of wine, usually with, uh, with some 7-Up or with some water. And, and that's how it started. But then, like everyone else, I, I, I started uh, drinking wine and probably when I was uh, in early years of university. And you're absolutely right. It started cheap, <laughs> and it got gradually better. Well, well, tell us a little bit. Let's go to let's um, take the most recent advocate column as sort of the the baseline for this questioning, and it's something we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, and that's this notion of wine labels and wine names becoming increasingly known, increasingly popular, and some in some cases stratospherically expensive. I guess Bordeaux might be the most extreme example. And what you did with your partner in the most recent wine column in The Advocate was choose wines that are both uh, at a high price point and then you found something that's a, that's a budget alternative. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe give, give us a few examples of great value wines and why you took that approach to the high-low uh, column that you put out? Uh, first of all, the high-low column was actually inspired by my, my, my partner in the column, uh, Paul Dakin, QC. By his wife Rosie. Uh, Rosie um, is the owner of uh, Butter Baked Goods, uh, but before that was an interior designer, and so she had suggested, uh, why don't you do what they you do they do in the interior decorating magazines? There's the renovation, the expensive renovation, and then the renovation that looks just like the expensive renovation, but costs about you know 10 percent of the cost of the expensive one, and so um, and so that was the principle. We um, first did a, a, a red wine um, version of it and then uh, more recently we did the uh, white wine version it's very true there are some wines that have just become extremely expensive particularly over the last 10 years I gave you the example of the, um, the a, a great wine I had that I bought back in 1993 Chateau Angelou uh, which cost me $45 back then and when I was uh, shopping in 2012 at, at, at the, uh, the 2009 Bordeaux release, um, and of course 2009 was a great year, but the Chateau Angelou was about $650, and so it's it's just gone crazy. I mean, likewise, a Mouton Rothschild uh, 1990 vintage was uh, $139, and I don't even know where it's at now, but I think it was about $1,800 in, in the most recent vintages. Um, so naturally, we look we look for wines that are going to taste very good because ultimately that's all that counts. If you like it, it tastes good. That's that's all you need. And um, and so we were able to identify uh, some some great white wines uh, in the kind of in the eighteen to twenty five dollar range that um, um, certainly don't necessarily replicate the expensive ones, but are still. Wonderfully, wonderful tasting wines and great value. One of them that I really love is a <clears throat> is a wine uh, from uh, Sardinia, 
uh, called um, uh, it comes from the Vernat, uh, not Vernatch, uh, from the Vermentino uh, grape, and um, and it's uh, made by um, a producer called uh, Arjolas. It's the um, Vermentino Costa Molino, eighteen some odd dollars. Um, I actually bought this and we served it at my daughter's wedding uh, a couple of weeks ago, and everyone loved it. It's beautiful wine, different flavor flavor profile. Uh, almost a bit of salinity in it. It's uh, it's a coastal winery just off the coast of Sardinia, and uh, provides a great flavor profile. Another one that uh, that was uh, in that article was a Domaine Lafage, uh, which is a uh, Cote de Roussillon uh, wine made from a bit of Roussin and also Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris. One of my favorite wines is Chateauneuf de Pape Blanc. I love the I love the Rhone whites. A um, little bit different. But they cost $60, $70, The Lafage, um, you can get for $24. So there's, I mean, there's, there's an example. And if you could drink three bottles for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Any other regions that you would recommend uh, in broad strokes that people should be keeping an eye on for good value wines? Well, I think I, think, uh, I can think of three areas. Uh, Southern France. There's, there's always great value in southern France. There is um, the Bila Haute, for example, is a $16, $16 um, uh, blend of, uh, of Syrah. Uh, Syrah and Grenache, I believe, and it may have one other uh, varietal. And it, you know, it comes at 16 bucks, and it's uh, you know, a, great, a great value. So southern France is one area. Uh, another uh, is, um, is Portugal. Uh, the trouble, uh, unfortunately, is that there there isn't a lot of variety uh, here in British Columbia. In fact, uh, Paul and I are thinking about doing a Portugal wine column next time, um, and we're just now searching to see whether or not there's enough variety for us to uh, to do it and for it to be useful. All right, so south of France, Portugal, and and Spain, and, and Spain. Yeah, okay, Spain has some great uh, some great value. I, I'd like to say the Okanagan, but I was just up there and. and they're getting more and more expensive up there. Right, right. It is. There's some wonderful wines, but they are a bit dear, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts, Bruno? And this is something I've asked a number of chefs over time, and it's how people, how diners can improve their own experience in a restaurant. So there's so much focus on what restaurants can be doing for us, which is great. Any tips for anybody, and maybe it's as simple as, as hosting a tasting with some friends before you go out for dinner, but anything that people can do to improve their own wine experience, and I'm thinking in particular when you're going out to, to uh, a restaurant to enjoy some wine with food. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I'm not sure if, if, if restaurants will like what I'm about to say, um, but when, when we go out for dinner, and my, my wife and I um, uh, cook a lot at home and we cook well at home. And so uh, dinners out are when we're getting together with friends or when we go out on special occasions. Uh, and sometimes the, you know, the odd Friday night. Um, but um, uh, when we do go out for a special occasion, a birthday, an anniversary, and uh, we love to go to Bishop's. Uh, it's one of our favorite restaurants. Um, and uh, I, I, I want to I pick my wine. I, and so I have a look at the, um, the, the menu online. I get a sense of what I want to eat before I even go, and because uh, you can do that now, yeah. and and then I very carefully uh, select uh, a wine for my cellar to bring, 
and I um, I pay the uh, the corkage, and I just think that's a just a great way of enjoying your meal. And it's not to say that these restaurants don't have great wine lists, but I do that uh, because I have a you know a pretty good cellar, and I and I pick wines. And if I'm going to have amazing food, it's also great to have amazing wine and not have to spend three or four or five hundred dollars to do it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Great tip. Tell us a little bit more about this cooking at home because uh, you mentioned it just now. We had a little chat earlier. You mentioned your wife uh, has a northern Italian background. Yes, her family is from uh, very close to uh, Treviso, so they're from uh, Veneto. Okay. In northern Italy, north uh, northeastern Italy, and then my family's from further south. Okay. Give us give us a, a menu of what you and your wife might cook on a on a Saturday night. It could be it could be just about anything. I'll yeah. tell you a little bit about some some of our some of our favorite foods. My wife tends to be uh, the one who will cook the starch dish uh, if it's risotto. Um, I tend to be the person who cooks the pasta. Uh, one of the things I learned before I went off to law school uh, is, is uh, through my mom was to make uh, homemade pasta. To make lasagna, to make pizza, that sort of thing. So um, uh, we have a lot of favorite dishes. My wife makes uh, lovely uh, risotto with mushrooms. We'll occasionally have um, uh, using some of the some of the local ingredients. And we live up in North Vancouver, close to Deep Cove. And so um, there's a great place you can pick up some lovely Dungeness crab. And she'll do an amazing crab risotto with a little bit of. Uh, uh, a little bit of goat cheese to, just to bring out some creaminess um, and it's a fantastic dish on, uh, on certain occasions when we have the family coming over for Sunday dinner I'll, I'll pull out the, uh, the pasta maker and uh, you know, I, make, I make fresh pasta uh, we will always the lasagna always made always made with fresh pasta um, but occasionally fettuccine uh, occasionally uh, uh, some uh, tortellini and how about uh, sauces? You were mentioning, uh, you know, well, Italian tomatoes. Yeah, so. favorite, like, favorite sauce, hands down for me, is the amatriciana, uh, one that my mom always made, and it's the uh, it's the sauce that's uh, that originated in the town of Amatrice uh, in the Lazio region, which uh, we're quite, where my parents are close to, we're just a little bit further east of there, and it's uh, it's made classically with guanciale. Uh, but you can use pancetta and um, and tomatoes. Of course, there's a there's a debate as to whether you use onion and whether you use garlic. Um, I use, do it the way my mom made it, which is just uh, uh, extra virgin olive oil. Uh, there are some who even say you should, don't use that until you until after. But uh, but I use it to uh, cook the uh, guanciale and then uh, good Italian summerzano tomatoes um, and then simmer it and you make it with uh, uh, a pasta called bucatini uh, which is my favorite pasta my mom used to serve bucatini all the time it's got thicker and it's got a nicer biting consistency to it than most pastas right, right. it's got a little tooth to it it's got a, yeah, it's got, yeah absolutely is it true I've, I've heard this I'll, I'll call it a rumor I won't give away my source but are you curing your own hams too do you do some of this <laughs> I am not currently. Cur- I, I used to do it with my dad. Okay. Yeah, and when my dad was alive, he just recently passed away. But God bless him. He used to make about a dozen, 
Prosciutto a year, and so I would go sometimes source it for him and, and pick it up when it was on sale. Of course, of course, had to be on sale, and um, and then uh, we'd go over to his place and and we would uh, uh, cure it together. My wife uh, uh, refuses to have prosciutto, prosciuttos hanging in our house, <laughs> and so they would hang in my in my dad's cantina. And um, and then we would get the benefit of them. We'd go over there and slice them up and take it home and eat it while we were there. But, yeah, of course. And then the sausages, of course, the Italian sausages were, um, and that's a tradition that continues. Now, tell me about because you just mentioned this, and I thought this was a wonderful way to share food with friends for a purpose. About the United Way dinners that you've, uh, you've held at your home. Yeah, we um, at, at the firm now goes back about seven or eight years um, for um, United Way and for other. Other charitable causes, we've had the uh, occasional silent auction at the firm, and I've always offered up a dinner for six uh, at, at uh, our home, and uh, people bid on that, and uh, we got some good bids. Uh, we've gotten it up there, and then, and then when uh, when there's been some really high-level competition, uh, I've been um, coaxed into offering a second one, and and I'll go ahead and do it, and then tell my wife later. And, <laughs> She's never very happy uh, about that, but uh, but she loves having the people from the firm over, and so uh, yeah, we do a uh, we do a five course uh, dinner. You know the ingredients change all the time. Uh, sometimes I do a very we do a very traditional Italian. Uh, like almost like a family type dinner uh, where I would do the lasagna which people love because few people have had the multi 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 layered fresh pasta uh, lasagna uh, sometimes we'll do a, a risotto um, that crab risotto is an example and my wife also does a lovely grilled prawn and grilled artichoke risotto we'll usually start with uh, a, a little appetizer sometimes it'll be a nanti pasto um, there's also a beautiful Roasted tomato and uh, bocconcini, so it just takes that bocconcini and tomato and makes it a little extra special with the dry or you know the, the, the tomatoes that have been roasting in the oven for for uh, quite a while. A drizzle of extra virgin olive oil, a little bit of a tiny bit of balsamic, and then we'll you know usually do a nice meat dish. I mean sometimes we'll do an osso buco, uh, and then we match every. Uh, every course with uh, a wine from a cellar, and I like to give people their money's worth, as they say, by, by pouring good wine. The first one I did was for uh, six male associates, and we went through uh, 11 bottles of wine at that dinner. <laughs> That's a good effort. <laughs> I, I don't even know why I was bringing out the good wine when we got to bottle number 10, but yeah, I thought we didn't make any difference. Yeah. That's, that's actually one thing I have noticed over time and I've, I've been better at in recent years is opening the good wine early. Is that, is that a, I'm sure that's a good tip. Would you agree with that? Well, it didn't happen at the wedding at Cana. <laughs> the best wine came out at the end. <laughs> but... Yes. I mean, what we'll do normally is we'll serve champagne. And sometimes I'll do that, even though it's not Italian. I tend to use Italian wines. Serve champagne at the beginning. But no, you know, I, I tend to serve good wines throughout. And um, I just have them, I have them pre-selected. And so um, usually um, uh, a very good Italian white. Um, and then I'll move to, like with pasta, a good wine from Tuscany, like a Chianti Classico Reserva, a Brunello. 
still is fantastic. I mean, it's also great with Yoso Buko. And, um, and then sometimes when we get into the meat dishes, if I'm, if I'm grilling something or, you know, if it's a lamb, um, I'll often serve up a, a super Tuscan. So that's got a bit of, uh, it'll, have, it'll have a Cabernet, it'll be a Bordeaux blend. Uh, maybe a bit of Sangiovese, and then and then we um, we move into um, like a dessert wine. And there we do perhaps a uh, Vin Santo from Tuscany uh, with dessert. So so they're good throughout. Good throughout. Good throughout. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to figure out a way to put in a bid. It's <laughs> coming here. Well, listen, Bruno. Last question for visitors from outside the province. Where? And I appreciate this is a hard question to answer because there's lots of great options in our province. But can you pick one or two or three wineries or, or subregions that you would uh, send people to to experience BC wine? Oh goodness, there's there's so there's so many good ones. Um, I'll give you some of my favorites. Now, I'm a Chardonnay. I, I, I love Chardonnay, and Meyer family does a great job, in my opinion. Uh, I think their, um, their micro-cuvee, uh, which is their, um, their, their top Chardonnay, is world-class. It's fantastic. Le Vieux Pan makes a wonderful wine. Uh, it was just up there a couple days ago, actually. And um, enjoyed uh, a bit of a, a tasting of a few of their select wines, um, their um, Retouche and their um, their Equinox, amazing. Those are a little higher end. Um, I still think La Friends brings fantastic value. Um, they do a great job. I mean, gosh, I could go on and on. Um, you know, a, a mutual friend, Derek Chapman, gave me a bottle of Villa Friends, their, what I understand to be their first sparkling, and we uh, cracked into it uh, this past weekend for my wedding. It was delicious. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, the, the, the list goes on, and I've, I've, I've probably um, done an injustice and forgotten about some. I should mention uh, our colleague uh, Bill Knutson's uh, winery, which is uh, Spearhead. Uh, he does uh, a wonderful Pinot Noir. Uh, we featured it in, in, in our uh, column, uh, as well as um, a good, uh, crisp, um, uh, minerally Pinot Gris. And, um, yeah, those are... Those are some. I mean, I, 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 I haven't explored, though, the Okanagan as much as I would have liked to. There are a lot of new boutique wineries that have come out that um, I've not had an opportunity to try. And uh, so people should look out for the, the new kids on the block. The up-and-comers. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, terrific. Listen, Bruno, thanks so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed this chat. Well, you're very welcome. All right, I hope you enjoyed those talks on wine as much as I did. My thanks to Bruno and to Kelsey for taking the time to be on the show. Remember, you can avoid the hassle of ever having to download the podcast again just by subscribing to Chef Demoni. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast directories. And as always, I love to hear from you. So if you've got a question for the show or a comment or a topic idea, Maybe there's a chef that you would like to hear interviewed, or perhaps you know a lawyer who's got an interesting connection to the food scene. Please just get in touch. You can either send me a message on Instagram or Facebook. And now on Twitter, actually. I've dipped my toe into the whole Twitter world. Uh, So you can try me there as well, or just send me an email to graham at chefdemoni.com. All right, that is all for today. Thank you again for joining me. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you in a week, right here on Chef Demoni.